So, Miles, I was thinking. What's up? Well, when we first started this podcast about a year ago, the idea was to unravel X-Men continuity, right? Yeah, we wanted to make an accessible guide, something people could pick up whenever and wherever. Exactly. But here's the thing. We're a year in, and we've covered a lot of continuity. I mean, we just hit issue 200 of the main series, and that's not even looking at New Mutants in the miniseries and the graphic novels. And we're about to hit a whole slew more ongoings, and 50-odd episodes is a lot for new listeners to catch up on so they can figure out what's happening. It makes sense, though. I mean, in 12 months, we've covered more than 20 years of continuity. It's not that I don't see a problem, I'm just not sure what we can really do about it. Well, we could do a recap episode. Wait, 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 wait. Are you suggesting... Mm -hmm. Rachel? No time to chat. We've got 20 years and 51 episodes to cover in, let's see, just under an hour. Better cue the music. What? Hi, I'm Rachel Adderton. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 52nd episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. This is actually the first episode of our second year. We have covered an absurd amount of material so far. And when we started this podcast, we wanted it to be an accessible guide to the X-Men, but that only works if we don't end up with so much internal continuity that people can't catch up. Right, we don't want to run into the ultimate Marvel problem. That's, that's exactly what we want to avoid. So we're going to try to do these periodically, and for now, this is going to be a recap. We basically give you a run-through of X-Men continuity from the start to the last place we left off in the podcast. So with that said, previously on Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men. What? 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 The what? 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 We start out in September of 1963 in the Silver Age with the launch of X-Men number one. Yeah, now this was uh, around the contemporaries of the Fantastic Four and the Avengers and Spider-Man. In was... fact, it launched the same month as the Avengers. Yeah, so this is basically the dawn of Marvel Comics, and if you'll notice one thing that all of those have in common, they're all still around today. This was some influential stuff going on. Well, not every Marvel title from that era was. We've really sort of followed the ones that stuck. In any case, during the Silver Age, uh, it established the concept of the X-Men, a guy named Professor Charles Xavier, a telepath, running a team of teenagers teenage mutants who were fighting to protect a world that not at least nominally hated and feared them. At that point, the team was Cyclops, Scott Summers, who could shoot concussive blasts of energy out of his eyes. Warren Worthington III, the angel who has wings and flies and dodges stuff. Beast Hank McCoy, who is extremely dexterous, has oversized hands and feet, and I believe is at least somewhat reduced vulnerability to damage. And we have Bobby Drake, Iceman, who can control ice. Starting in the first issue, they are also joined by Jean Grey, Marvel Girl, who initially is only telekinetic, but later gains the power of telepathy after Professor Xavier fakes his own death in order to fight some aliens. And so these five characters would be the team for quite a while, as the creative team went from Stan Lee and Jack Kirby to Roy Thomas and Neil Adams, with some other folks in between. The feel of the Silver Age is very much a boarding school drama. It's stories about teenagers being teenagers while they fight crime. It also introduces a lot of the X-Men's iconic villains, including Magneto, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and the Sentinels. And also, you know, Juggernaut and the Blob and Sauron and some other ones who are less exciting, but will still keep coming back again and again. The team remains basically intact for the majority of the Silver Age. It splits up and gets back together a couple times, and towards the end gets two new part-time members, Alex Summers, Havoc, Cyclops' younger brother, and Lorna Dane, Polaris, who is Magneto's on-again, off-again daughter. That gets kind of uh, complicated. Now, X-Men didn't really sell so well past a certain point, and it actually got to the point where Marvel said, you know what, let's just start running reruns from previous Silver Age issues and just keep the numbering going. Right, so it effectively got cancelled 60-odd issues in, and there was no new X-Men 
until the 70s with Second Genesis, Giant Size X-Men number one. And this was a radical reinvention of the team. This had the creative team of Len Wein and Dave Cockrum. It introduced us to a new international team of X-Men, some of whom had appeared before and some of whom had not. So we had Wolverine with razor sharp claws from the Canadian Secret Service military something or other. Blue furry teleporter Kurt Wagner, who went by the codename of Nightcrawler. Aurora Monroe, Storm from Africa, who could control the weather. Proletarian Man of Steel, Colossus, Piotr Rasputin. The one that everyone forgets about. Banshee, who had a sonic scream and hailed from Ireland. And two members who were on the team only briefly, Sunfire, um, who's a national hero and occasionally villain in Japan. And Thunderbird, who is uh, extra strong, extra dexterous, nigh but not entirely to his detriment invulnerable. And returning to the team at this point is Cyclops, who is the only team member, at least initially, who crosses over between the two eras. And the reason the new team was recruited at this point was because the original X-Men had gone off to investigate a mysterious island. Along with Havoc and Polaris. Yeah, they had not come back. Cyclops was the only uh, person who did, and he said the rest of the team was in need of rescue. The new team rescued the old team. This has been massively retconned in Deadly Genesis, including the existence of a third Summer's brother. That's not going to be relevant to anything in ongoing continuity that we're looking at right now, though, so let's just skim over it. But more importantly, this revitalized a book that had really not had much interest in it in quite a long time. All of a sudden, X-Men was this new, bizarre thing that everyone wanted to check out. It also introduced a daring new writer who was going to become the definitive voice of X-Men for 17 years following, and that is Chris Claremont. Now, at this point, Claremont is pretty much synonymous with the X-Men, especially Bronze Age X-Men. He had this very wordy, emotional style with a lot of depth and nuance to the character. Characters. And, you know, he did certainly have various tropes, both in terms of his dialogue and his plots that he would come back to, but Claremont was great. And Claremont believed very strongly at this point in making the characters dynamic and having people leave the team, quit, have new lives, having new generations of students come in. So during this era, again, you see more change more quickly than really any other. So Thunderbird dies very quickly, Sunfire quits the team, and... And comes back and quits and comes back. Sunfire's definitive gimmick is quitting and rejoining the team multiple times in the same issue, sometimes multiple times on the same page because he is just that good at it. We also see a couple of older X-Men, namely Jean Grey, Marvel Girl, and Beast join up with team. This actually leads very quickly into one of the most definitive events in all of X-Men history, which is Jean Grey seemingly dying and then becoming the Phoenix, merging with this cosmic force. The X-Men are, for complicated reasons, on a space shuttle fleeing an exploding space station, and the radiation shielding on the shuttle is not going to be sufficient to protect it against an impending solar flare. Jean can create enough telekinetic shielding to get the shuttle in, but it's going to kill her. So yes, this uh, big fire raptor cosmic thing shows up and says, hey, basically, I'll protect you. Just sort of merge with me. And she says, okay. And, you know, there'll be lots and lots of retcons about this. But as far as what we've covered right now, that hasn't happened. So let's just assume that that's the way things went down. The most important thing about the Bronze Age, though, is that it introduces a previously existing Marvel character to X-Men continuity. And that is Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau, our very, very favorite Marvel character. Yes. Now, Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau, he's an astronaut, he's a sailor, he's a scientist. He's a two-time Nobel Prize winning scientist. And he helps the X-Men now and again, including on the space mission that we were just talking about. But he'll keep coming back for a while to basically just be the best at everything. There is literally nothing that he cannot do, and there is nothing you can do that he cannot do better. So the X-Men go on various adventures. They're gradually learning to work better together as a team. And at one point, their oldest nemesis, Magneto, returns, and in the ensuing battle, they are all separated. 
separated. Most of the X-Men are on the other side of the world, going through various adventures in Japan, where Wolverine meets a woman he'll later fall in love with. In... They fight some mandroids. They do. They fight some Canadians. Uh, yes, they go to Canada and meet Alpha Flight, Wolverine's old superhero team. Alpha Flight is a Canadian superhero team, uh, co-created by one of the definitive X-Men artists, John Byrne. The X-Men will intersect on and off with them, but I do, do we need to go into who Alpha Flight is here? Eh, not really. They're Canadian superheroes. Good enough. Now, while these guys are gallivanting around, uh, Beast and Jean are just back in New York, and they, each group assumes that the other is dead. Jean Grey is living at this point with one of the greatest Marvel characters of all time, Misty Knight, and Millie the Model, and just sort of trying to go on with her life. Beast has, you know, multiple teams and alliances. Everyone wants Beast because Beast is the best. While this is all going on, Professor Xavier's been getting some weird visions, these headaches and these sort of space opera-looking side-of-the-van stuff, and he doesn't know what's going on for the time being. What it's going to turn out is that he has been in psychic touch with Princess Lalandra of the Shi'ar Empire, a race of space birds who are kind of jerks and have massive internal power struggles. She is currently exiled by her brother, Mad Emperor Daken. This is the first time we really see space stuff start to overlap with the X-Men, and that's going to be a big, big deal right up until the present day. Now, while they're in space with the Shi'ar, the X-Men also encounter for the first time something that is going to become pivotal much, much later than actually we are, and that is the Emkron crystal. It's a crystal that's sort of the nexus of all realities, and it's going to be a big deal once continuity starts getting internally screwed up before the Age of Apocalypse. During this era, they also encounter, among the space guys, they meet a group called the Starjammers. One of them, a fancy space pirate named Corsair. As it turns out, Corsair is Cyclops's father, who he thought was dead for a long time, Major Christopher Summers, who in fact was abducted by aliens and ended up a space pirate. What are the odds? Fairly low. After a little bit, they end up fighting a villain named Proteus. Now, Proteus is the son of Moira McTaggart, who is an old colleague of Professor Xavier's. Not just a colleague, she was an old flame of Charles Xavier's. She is another geneticist, and she works out of a research facility on Muir Island in Scotland. And Proteus is basically a reality-warping mutant whose powers and personality are completely out of control. The X-Men go there and end up actually having to kill him. And in my opinion, Proteus is the first sort of real X-Men villain of this Bronze Age of X-Men comics. He's one of the first with a real sticking power who is introduced. I was thinking through others, and I mean, there are people like Lang, but Lang is basically another guy with Sentinels. And Proteus is the first really challenging villain, and I think the first really new one we see. And he's also a great example of why people are scared of mutants, because some of them are this kind of out of control and do have enough power to do as much damage as Proteus does. During the Proteus arc, we also encounter tragic, doomed, and very angry hovercraft rental dude Angus McWhorter. Angus McWhorter, we hardly knew ye. So after these sort of running around and adventuring bits have been going on for a while, a new group of antagonists appears. Those are the Hellfire Club that Chris Claremont basically straight up ripped off of the old British TV show The Avengers. So the Hellfire Club is a bunch of very, very powerful movers and shakers in the world, many of whom are mutants, some of whom are not, and they are utterly amoral. They are out to amass power. They dress up, depending on whether they're male or female, in sort of anachronistic 18th century clothing or fancy bondage gear. One of them, a man named Jason Wingard, name also stolen from the Avengers, has been basically projecting these psychic visions onto Jean while the rest of the X-Men were presumed dead off on the other side of the world. In the process, convincing her that she is getting flashes from a previous life in which she hooked up with a dashing gentleman named surprise surprise jason wingard mastermind 
Spoiler is the creepiest person. But basically what he's doing is he's trying to sort of corrupt Jean Grey to make her mind darker and darker and to make her more dependent on him. The Hellfire Club realizes that Jean Grey has the power of the Phoenix. They want that power. And Jason wants that power under his direct control so that he can use it as a means to move up in the club and amass power because the Hellfire Club is the kind of place where people who are jealous of you murder you. So it's really good to have a nigh-omnipotent ace in the hole. Eventually, they're found out, but not before the darkness in Jean Grey has grown enough that she manifests a new sort of side of her personality. She goes from Phoenix to Dark Phoenix. Her costume turns red and she flies off into space where she devours a sun in the process as an accident of the artwork and subsequent writing, sealing her own fate because she eats a sun that is orbited by an inhabited planet and in the process commits genocide. The X-Men, they're still doing what they can to protect her, to help her, to help her come back to her senses. And she is gradually. They get through to her. And while Dark Phoenix is still a risk, the Jean Grey personality is back in the fore. But the Shi'ar Empire, the space bird jerks we saw before, who are now led by Lalandra, Professor Xavier's lover, they come back and they say, after what this person did, she needs to go on trial because that is genocide. And what they end up deciding on as the only possible option that she might survive is trial by combat, which will be the X-Men against the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, basically the team of the best fighters in the universe. There is this big battle on the blue area of the moon in Uncanny X-Men number 137. The blue area of the moon is a secret part of the moon that you didn't know about before that has atmosphere, and then it also has a bunch of really old Kree weapons and technology, which the X-Men use, and they win. But just as they do... Jean starts to go Dark Phoenix again in the wake of the battle, and she uses one of the pieces of Kree to kill herself. So Jean Grey dies right in front of Cyclops, her at this point fiancé. He is crushed. The X-Men have won the battle, but they've lost the woman they came there to save, Jean Grey. Cyclops leaves the team, but as he's going, someone else is joining, and that is a young woman who they met during the very early stages of the Dark Phoenix saga, Kitty Pride. Kitty Pride is a 13-year-old girl from Illinois with the power to walk through walls, and she, it's very clear early on, has become Chris Claremont's favorite character and the favorite character of a lot of the readers at the time. If you're familiar with Kitty Pride primarily from, for example, the X-Men Evolution cartoon, you have no idea how awesome Kitty Pride is. She is great. She is a gawky, awkward, way too angry, gets in fights teenager. And she's really into the idea of being a superhero, and mostly she's really into superhero costumes. Yeah, she changes costumes quite a few times. So in the aftermath of all of this, Scott is gone. He goes off and tries to be a normal person, meets a woman named Lee Forrester, who captains a ship, and proceeds to get into superhero adventures with her despite having trying to have a normal life. Scott and Lee end up shipwrecked on an island in the middle of, I believe, the Pacific Ocean, which we have been calling Octopusheim. It is actually supposed to be the Lovecraftian island of Rola, or at least the ruins of it. It has, at that point, been taken over by Magneto, who dresses them up in ridiculous outfits and then threatens to destroy the Earth if the U.S. and the Soviet Union don't enact total nuclear disarmament, because Magneto is a complicated individual. Around the same time, the Hellfire Club is coming back, and we're seeing a certain character from them become a lot more prominent, that being the White Queen, oh, Emma Frost. I thought you were going to say Harvey and Janet. Well, I was going to say the White Queen, Emma Frost, but you know, I think I like your answer better. If you are previously unfamiliar with this podcast, you should know that we get really, really into weird throwaway bit characters because they're all kind of amazing in this era. And this sort of aftermath era leads into one of the most well-known X-Men stories ever, Days of Future Past. Days of Future Past is also the first X-Men time travel story setting the stage for years and years of increasingly warped timelines and continuity, and eventually the necessity for us to step in and explain this nonsense. 
Now, Days of Future Past shows us a dark future where anti-mutant sentiment has gone so far that the Sentinels, the mutant hunting robots we've seen before, have basically taken over the country, turning it into this terrible dystopia. So Kate Pride, the adult Kitty Pride, has her consciousness sent back in time to see if she can prevent the assassination that basically turned the tide, making anti-mutant sort of annoyance into anti-mutant hatred. The reason it has to be Kate is that Kitty is still relatively new to the team and as such is the only one without sufficient psychic defenses to keep out her older self. Things are resolved vaguely satisfactorily, but unfortunately don't have the overall effect they're hoping for, and it's still kind of insinuated that they might be headed toward that dark future. This is also the first hint we get at the existence of the Marvel multiverse splinter timelines, of which the X-Men will someday have way too many to count. Way too many. So many. Now, after that, the X-Men end up in space, this time with Cyclops temporarily back with them. He comes and goes a lot during this era. And this happens when they are captured by the evil sister of Lalandra, that being Deathbird. Who has the best name ever. And the aliens that she's been working with, these sort of uh, alien movie-style xenomorphs called the Brood. Now, what the Brood's MO is, they take people and they impregnate them with brood embryos, and they basically keep them in happy hallucinogenic stasis until the embryos burst forth, you turn into a Brood. And so the X-Men are on this increasingly seeming like a suicide mission in space with some of the strongest storytelling that they have ever had. And also with Starjammers, who are never not awesome. They eventually do make it back to Earth, barely. In the meantime, however, Professor Xavier, who has thought they were dead during this time because they had no way of contacting him, has decided, along with Moira McTaggart, to recruit a new generation of mutants. Now, this has been prompted partly by the presence of Ilyana Rasputin. That's Colossus's younger sister. She first ended up hanging out with the team a while back when she was kidnapped by the supervillain Arcade to serve as bait. Eventually, she accidentally fell through a magical portal into limbo, aged six years, became a demon sorceress, and came back as a teenager with some serious, serious issues. Professor Xavier's new students, there were five originally, and those were Cannonball, Sam Guthrie, who has the power to propel himself forward like a cannonball, and is the most polite superhero of all time, Sunspot, Roberto DaCosta, who can absorb solar energy, take on a sort of black sunspot-looking form in which he has enhanced strength and reduced vulnerability to damage. He will eventually be able to fly, but he cannot yet at this point. Daniel Moonstar, who goes from being called Psyche, to Spellbinder, to Mirage, she has a lot of names over the years, but she can pull psychic images out of people's heads of what they most fear or desire. She's also got on and off psychic connections to animals and general and poorly defined psionic powers. She's also just really physically badass. There's also Rain Sinclair, Wolfsbane, who is a young Scots girl who can turn herself into a wolf or a human-wolf hybrid form. And there's Karma, Shan Man, who's a little bit older than the rest of the team, and she has the power to psionically possess people. Now, the team hasn't been together for very long when the X-Men come back from space, with Kitty, of course, in a new costume. With the unfortunate news that Xavier, who has got the new mutants together, is in fact in an advanced stage of infection with a brood embryo himself. And so Xavier has a brood burst through his body just in time for the X-Men and the New Mutants to fight it off and for the Shi'ar and Starjammers to basically clone him a new body and put his consciousness into it. Because you can do that kind of thing in X-Men. At this point, Xavier, who has previously used a wheelchair, is now able to walk, which he'll be able to do for quite a while. Spoiler, if you are wondering about how consistently Xavier can or can't walk or does or doesn't use a wheelchair, it's all over canon and they have retconned the story of how he originally ended up in a wheelchair so many times that it's not even worth worrying about. So now the X-Men and the New Mutants are both on Earth. There are now two teams of mutants hanging out in the X-Mansion. Nominally, the New Mutants are supposed to be students. They are not supposed to be superheroes, although they are very clearly being groomed to that end. At this point, because we've got two ongoing series, we're going to look at the X-Men first, New Mutants second. 
Now, what's also going on around this time is a lot of one-offs and miniseries and other spin-offs. X-Men is an incredibly, incredibly highly selling book. So Marvel figured, well, let's milk this cash cow. Hey, Chris Claremont, how about you write some more stuff? Also, it's worth noting Claremont is writing the entire X-Line, which he's going to continue to do for a really long time. So let's see, we've got uh, the Uncanny X-Men and New Teen Titans miniseries, which is a two-issue series written by Claremont, drawn by Walter Simonson, who was drawing Teen Titans at the time. We have the Marvel graphic novel God Loves Man Kills, which launched around the same time as the New Mutants graphic novel that introduced the characters. God Loves Man Kills remains one of the best X-Men stories ever written. It is loosely the basis for the second X-Men movie, X2 X-Men United. We also have a Wolverine miniseries by Claremont and Frank Miller, which was really what capitalized on the characters' increasing popularity. The Magic miniseries, which we mentioned before. That's Liana Rasputin's origin. There was an X-Men and Micronauts miniseries as well. The Micronauts were a toy property who were owned by Marvel, or rather licensed by Marvel at the time. In the main line, this is the point in the series where Claremont pretty much stops pulling from older continuity, older villains, older characters, reintroducing, kind of reinventing them. This is the first point where you see him really creating a lot of new characters and doing a lot with that. One of the most significant and one of the first introduced is Madeline Pryor. Now, she looks almost exactly like Jean Grey. She meets up with Cyclops after he's quit the team. They have a whirlwind romance and very quickly become engaged. Madeline will eventually turn out to actually be a clone of Jean Grey. She was not originally intended as such, but retcons, retcons, retcons. Madeline Pryor is the continuity black hole that keeps on giving, or one of several. We're also introduced to a group called the Morlocks, who are these mutants that live in the tunnels underneath New York. They basically are outcasts and have decided to prosper as such. They're led by Callisto, who ends up fighting Storm during the X-Men's first encounter with them. This is a time when Storm is leading the team, and she ends up leading the Morlocks after beating Callisto in combat. After Callisto kidnaps Angel, intending to marry him because she is basically a Barbarella evil queen LARPer. And speaking of romantic entanglements like Scott and Madeline Pryor, Wolverine had met a woman named Mariko Yoshida when he was in Japan. He goes over there for a while and becomes engaged to her. They almost get married when everything goes to hell at the last minute. That, and some bad stuff that happens with Scott and Madeline is all thanks to the return of everybody's least favorite douchebag, Jason Wingard, mastermind. And speaking of new characters, we have Rogue, who was a villain introduced a little while before in an Avengers annual. She was a mutant working for Mystique's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and she actually comes to the X-Men for refuge because she's lost control of her powers, which involve touching people to absorb their abilities and personalities. And at this point, she is most notorious for having fully absorbed the memory, psyche, and superpowers of Carol Danvers. Shortly after she joins the team, we see another person. This is Rachel Summers, who came back from the Days of Future Past timeline, realizing that Kate Pride's mission had not worked to the present day. Now, Rachel is the alternate future kid of Scott Summers and Jean Grey, and so the first thing she discovers upon returning to the past is that she's not going to be able to exist in this timeline because her mom is dead. In the meantime, in different parts of the Marvel Universe, Kitty Pride and Wolverine end up going off to Japan because of some bad business deals that Kitty Pride's father gets into. And long story short, she comes back a ninja having been uh, thoroughly traumatized by some terrible events with a new codename, Shadowcat. A codename only a 13-year-old could come up with. We also have a character named Dazzler who was introduced a little bit before the Dark Phoenix saga and who has had her own series for a while. She is uh, starring in a movie in the graphic novel titled Dazzler the Movie, which uh, while intended to quell anti-mutant 
mutant sentiment actually makes it much worse. So this is where we see the hated and feared part of being a mutant really start to come into the fore. Now, Dazzler was originally intended to be a multimedia breakout character. She was supposed to star in an actual movie. There was going to be an album. She also had an ongoing series that is a fan favorite that we are not covering just because it's not very X-Men tied. She is a mutant, however, and she has ongoing on and off ties to the X-Men, including one of our very favorite weird forgotten miniseries titled Beauty and the Beast. This is where she ends up getting sucked into this underground Los Angeles battle arena culture, like you do, and Hank McCoy, the Beast, on the Avengers at the time, does his best to help her out. It's bizarre and wonderful, and we love it. It's also the first ex-tangential book written by Anne Nesenti, who you'll be hearing much more about later. While this is going on, sort of in the main continuity, the government, with all the increased anti-mutant hysteria, is starting to talk about different ways to make mutants less of a threat. They work with a mutant named Forge, an inventor, who is able to create a, a weapon that removes mutant powers. The government intends to use it on Rogue, because she's very much an outlaw, but en- he ends up depowering Storm, thus leading into Life-Death, and eventually Life-Death 2, two of the strongest X-Men issues ever written. But Storm doesn't actually get to resolve her crisis of identity and superpowers, because a sorcerer named Kulan Gath shows up in a pendant that a dock worker finds inside a fish and sucks the entire city of New York into an age undreamed of, nominally an actual historical era, actually basically the Hyborian Age from Conan. That doesn't last too long. Eventually, the X-Men get back to things that do not involve Conan worlds. Sadly. And uh, they're sort of leaderless at this point, because Cyclops, their initial leader, left to go attempt to be a normal person, and and Storm, their replacement, has now lost her powers and is trying to re-find her place in the world. Nightcrawler at this point is nominally in charge, although the person who actually ends up doing a lot of the strategizing is Kitty Pryde, mostly because she's the only person who really doesn't care enough about being polite to not just say what needs to be said. Just as it looks like anti-mutant sentiment can't get much worse, the younger brother of Thunderbird, the early X-Man who died in his first mission right when Claremont took over, ends up challenging the X-Men to a duel inside a military base. They come out as total outlaws, not looking very good at all. Let's talk quickly about Thunderbird too, because he is a member of a team who is going to become very important in New Mutants, and that is the Hellions. The Hellions are students at Emma Frost's Massachusetts Academy, basically set up to be the evil team antithesis of the New Mutants, who are the teenage kids at the Xavier Institute. In addition to a set of characters we'll get to later, they include one who got her own limited series after being introduced in the cartoon Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. And that is Firestar, who I love to this day. The Firestar limited series is really dark for a character who was introduced in a children's cartoon. Emma Frost essentially manipulates her into joining the Massachusetts Academy, nonstop gaslights her, kills her pony, and tries to set her up to assassinate Celine, the essentially immortal black queen of the Hellfire Club, before Angelica finally says, I have had enough of this, and goes off on her own. Now, while this is all going on, the New Mutants have been having their own ongoing, and speaking of Selene, that character first appears in one of their first adventures, where they go to a hidden Roman, ancient Roman enclave called Nova Roma. There they meet Amara Aquila, who joins the team as Magma. Now, Nova Roma is in South America, and it is nominally a lost Roman colony. Whether or not that is actually the case is retconned and re-retconned a few times. I believe the current status is that it actually is, in fact, a lost Roman colony. And as this is going on, we see the New Mutants' early artist, who actually, I believe, departs a bit way into Nova Roma. That is Bob McCloud. He created the look of the team, and man, we love him a lot. His work was just phenomenal, as brief as it was. If you are drawing comics about a team of superhero teenagers, you should look at Bob McCloud's early New Mutants as reference. It's terrifically good. He does an amazing job both visually distinguishing them and completely avoiding a really common pitfall, which is over-sexualizing female teenage characters. He is super good, super consistent about that, and a super expressive artist. 
Speaking of teenage female characters, Ilyana Rasputin, magic around this time becomes a member of the New Mutants. Uh, now that we've seen her origin in her miniseries, we uh, see a little more nuance to all the semi-dark stuff that she does. Now, Ilyana is actually a mutant. She can teleport through time and space by way of the demon dimension of Limbo. She is also, as we mentioned previously, a demon sorceress, although the team isn't going to find out about that secondary set of powers until a little bit later. But pretty soon, uh, speaking of new additions, the artist Bill Sienkiewicz is going to take over New Mutants and basically define the look of the book and, in a way, redefine comics. And with Bill Sienkiewicz will come two of our favorite New Mutants, Cypher, Doug Ramsey, who has translation powers. He can basically pick up, speak, learn, and translate almost any language near instantaneously. Those powers will eventually be expanded ridiculously but for now they're fairly straightforward. And... Warlock, the space teenager, who is a techno-organic entity fleeing the father who is attempting to murder and eat him, which is what you do if you're a part of his species, and has come to Earth. So Warlock ends up joining the team. He is technically a mutant, but mainly he's an alien who looks kind of like an angry black scribble on the page. Bill Sienkiewicz's run on New Mutants defined a visual era in comics and really changed the definition of what superhero comics could be, and nowhere is that more evident than the Demon Bear saga. So Danielle Moonstar, that being Mirage, is uh, Cheyenne. She's Native American, and she remembers her parents being killed by this, this fearsome, possibly mystical bear. And in this arc, it comes after her, tries to kill her, and the other new mutants have to basically fight it off in this weird psychic realm while she's being treated from the severe injuries it gave her inside a hospital. It's only a few issues. It is one of the coolest comic arcs I have ever read. Again, really literally changed the face of superhero comics pretty much forever. Now, shortly after that, the New Mutants had some interaction with Cloak and Dagger because in an issue of Marvel Team-Up, Sunspot and Wolfsbane had respectively received their powers. This is Morrison Kevich. It's notable mainly for its gorgeous, gorgeous art. Yeah, the art is beautiful. The story is, well, there are issues with Cloak and Dagger's backstory and they intersect awkwardly with the X-Men, but for what it is, it's, it's really lovely. It's just not the Demon Bear Saga because nothing is the Demon Bear Saga. Now, what works a lot better than that is the arc that comes after, which is where we first First meet Legion. Legion, David Holler, is, as it turns out, the son of Professor Charles Xavier with Gabriel Holler, Israel's ambassador to the United Kingdom. He has uh, what would be called in modern parlance dissociative identity disorder. But which at that time is referred to alternately as schizophrenia and autism because comics. He absorbed the personality of an assassin who tried to kill him and his mother in Israel, created some additional personalities inside his mind, and Professor Xavier and some of the new mutants go inside his mind to this mindscape he's created to try to heal him and prevent him from causing any further damage. Early on in New Mutants, a few things happened. One, which we're going to pretty much gloss over completely, involved Team America, a team of five motorcycle guys with the power to manifest a sixth motorcycle guy. You don't need to care about that. They were based on action figures. But in the arc that they showed up in, also killed one of the founding New Mutants, at least apparently Karma Shan Koi Man. There was an explosion at the end of one issue. Uh, she was lost, presumed dead by the beginning of the next. However, around this time, the uh, New Mutants are pulled into an arena, in fact, the same one from Beauty and the Beast, that Dazzler Beast miniseries, which is run by a mysterious figure who turns out to be Karma. But not just Karma. She's Karma possessed by a villain called the Shadow King, who is a disembodied psychic entity who Xavier had fought and vanquished years ago and who is now using one of his students as a means of complicated and indirect revenge. The New Mutants end up uh, freeing her from the Shadow King, pretty soon after that end up in Asgard. But around the same time, we see Rachel Summers, which we covered a couple episodes ago, embracing the Phoenix Force, the power that merged with her mother, Jean Grey, in an attempt to become strong enough to protect the 
universe from the Beyonder from a crossover called Secret Wars. Let's take a moment to talk about Secret Wars because we're going to have to. Secret Wars was two series that ran over a period of several years in a row. In Secret Wars 1, a disembodied entity called the Beyonder basically kidnapped a bunch of heroes and villains from the Marvel Universe, put them in a jar, and made them fight. It was an action figure gimmicky deal. I gotta say, I have a lot of those action figures. They were pretty great. Right. The title literally came from a focus group study Mattel did, saying that kids responded well to the word secret and the word wars. Now, not long after this, there was a sequel series called Secret Wars 2 that could not have been more different. Secret Wars 2 is about the disembodied entity, the Beyonder, coming to Earth and deciding to try to understand what it's like to be a person. It derailed the entire Marvel line for several years. In terms of where we are in the podcast, we are in the middle of that continuity-wise right now. In addition to, you know, the ongoing series, it crossed over with literally every line continually. And it featured such amazing moments as a lot of weird, creepy sexual coercion, some genocide, and Spider-Man teaching a cosmic entity to poop. So anyway, um, at the same time, Ilyana, the demon sorceress within her, is becoming more and more prominent. That was something the Beyonder triggered. She has sort of this dark side that's a part of her, and every time she uses her, her magic in dark ways, it gets stronger. Now, this becomes a critical detail when the New Mutants get sucked into Asgard because Loki has a beef with the X-Men as a result of the X-Men Alpha Flight crossover, in which he tried to make a better world by giving everyone extra superpowers but taking away their imaginations. It didn't work. They made him promise not to harm the X-Men directly, and Loki being Loki, he found an immediate way around that. That being to capture the New Mutants and turn them over to Amora the Enchantress, another Asgardian villain. The New Mutants spent some time in Asgard, the realm of the Norse gods. Danielle Moonstar, Mirage, became an actual Honest God Valkyrie. And uh, the rest of them went through various other changes as well. It wasn't too long before the X-Men themselves, realizing that something was amiss through the psychic link between Kitty Pride and Ilyana Rasputin, who are totally subtextual girlfriends, headed to Asgard themselves, where it turned out that Loki's plot from the beginning had been to take the depowered Storm, who he had not sworn his oath to stay away from, into a new Thunder God, hoping to take over Asgard through her power. The New Mutants and the X-Men did end up vanquishing Loki, and heading back to Earth just in time for the now-reformed Magneto, who had been becoming a more nuanced, gray, and ultimately heroic character, to turn himself into the government and go on trial in front of the entire world. The X-Men managed to save the trial and most of the world from Andrea and Andreas von Strucker, the kids of notorious Nazi and Captain America villain Baron Strucker, who may or may not actually have a first name, I don't actually care. Magneto is essentially found not guilty. However, Professor Xavier is dying. The reason he is dying is that he was beaten, not even nearly, but actually to death by anti-mutant students in his psychology class. He was found and revived by the Morlocks and their healer, who looks like a D&D wizard, but unfortunately, his remaining good health was contingent on him resting up for a long time, which he completely failed to do. So now he's basically dying. So at this point, Lalandra, his uh, space bird girlfriend, who is now once again in exile in the Shi'ar Empire, and Corsair, the father of Scott Summers and his Starjammer space pirate allies, they take Professor Xavier off-world to treat him with their alien technology, and Xavier, as his last wish before he leaves, says, Magneto, take my place, I trust you, I need you to run the school. That's where we are now. That is where we left off. Now, we have glossed this heavily. There are a few details that we might refer to, you know, with context in future episodes. But if you've just listened to what we've just said, you're pretty much caught up on the important stuff. This takes us to 1985. So it's sort of a new era for the X-Men from here. We're going to see the book X-Factor launch pretty soon, starring the yes. original five X-Men. Oh, I love that one. 
Um, and we're going to have the New Mutants and the X-Men books themselves take some slightly different turns given the Professor Xavier is gone and Magneto is running the school. Magneto is a jerk. So there you have it. Going from 1963 to 1985, a lot of stuff happens, it turns out. So having covered all of that, I suppose we had best go into a couple of questions. All right, let's do it. Accidental Erotica asks on Tumblr, if you guys were offered a chance to write an X-Men book, would you take it, or would you want to keep criticism slash explaining and writing separate? I think the answer to both halves of that question is basically yes. It would be a lot of fun to write an X-Book. There are definitely stories that I would love to pitch given the opportunity. I'm answering this more just because I'm the one of us who is a comics writer sometimes. You're an actual writer, it's true. Um, I just fix computers. Yeah, yeah. Occasionally people pay me money to write the funny books. It's not something that I would, I think, immediately drop everything for. There are stories and projects I feel that way about, and they're generally ones that are mine and that I own. It would be a lot of fun to write an X-Book or tell an X-Story but for that, I think Marvel would have to be cool with me very, very heavily compartmentalizing what I was doing there from what I was doing on the podcast. And Miles and I would definitely have to have a lot of talk about conflict of interest and how we wanted to handle that. Yeah, that would be a little complicated. I mean, you know, like we said, I, I'm no writer, and I think I would have pretty much the same concerns even if I were. You would be awesome, though. They should totally give us an entirely continuity-separate Peter Corbo series. <laughs> I love this plan. Let's do it. Marvel, uh, call us. Xander Khan asks on Tumblr, I was wondering, who assigns numbers to the various Marvel timelines? I understand that the 616 designation was first referred to in Captain Britain. What about the other timelines? When we refer, for example, to the Ascani clan timeline as Marvel 4935, where do we find that designation? Do the Marvel editors assign the number after the fact, or is it referred to in the actual story or in a comic? Okay, so the answer is basically both. So many universe numbers are referred to numerically in the comics, especially in sort of the reality-hopping ones like Captain Britain, Excalibur, Exiles, that sort of thing. Stories that are set in the main Marvel universe, they don't call it Earth-616, they just call it Earth because, you know, that's all they know. A ton of these numbers actually uh, were first defined in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, uh, specifically 2005's Alternate Universes edition. That's where a lot of these numbers come from. Although Alan Moore assigned a whole bunch of them just in the text of the Captain Britain miniseries when he was writing, so you see universe numbers popping up at that point as well. Yeah, now one interesting thing is that many of the universe designations, the ones that were defined by Marvel, they're actually the two-digit year and the one or two-digit month that the universe was revealed. So Earth-616, the main universe, hey, what do you know? Fantastic Four number one came out in... 61, the sixth month of that June. Days of Future Past is Earth 811. That was January 1981. And there are actually lots of others. Now, this isn't always the case and has certainly fallen out of fashion lately, especially after 2000 when the numbers flipped over. It's definitely there for more than I would have expected. And there have been a couple stories that directly addressed the universe numbering system and tried to change it, but there are some numbers that have just stuck no matter what. So, technically, a couple of universes got destroyed and the numbering system shifted, but everyone still refers to this Earth as Earth-616, and everyone knows that that's what you're talking about. If you start calling it, like, Earth-614, people would be like, well, what's that? Is that is that the one where there's, like, no color green? Is that is that the one where the Avengers have mustaches? Because we do know that 200, 500 is where the Avengers all have beards. We do indeed. And yes, many of the alternate universes are ridiculous. We should say, if you are interested in exploring those alternate universes, a good place to do that in one place, and also to look at some of the interesting conversations that have gone on around their numbering, is marvel.wikia.com, which has a long, long long, not necessarily comprehensive because, man, there are a lot of universes, but one of the best lists out there. 
Now, Marvel Editorial has been pretty vocal, at least some members of them, about not liking the, the universe designations. They just like the idea of having the Marvel Universe and the Ultimate Universe, and then some alternate ones. And with the Secret Wars big event coming up that's going to squish every single alternate universe into one world until there's only one world left, I suspect the idea of Earth-616, Earth-811, that sort of thing, is probably going to fall by the wayside. We'll see how it actually turns out, but probably that. We, on the other hand, will be continuing to use those terms until they pry them from our cold, dead hands because, damn it, they're useful. So, meanwhile, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and one of the things that some of our Patreon supporters at certain tiers get are various rewards. One of those rewards is being acknowledged on air in a variety of voices, so I'm going to turn this over to the Claremontian Angry Narrator. Dare you, David Jacobson and Brett Adams? Will you gaze into the abyss with us? Try to wrap your mortal minds around the complexity, the madness of the multiverse? Whatever your answers, the final question remains. What will you be when you emerge? And now I will hand it over to, I believe, Mr. Sinister. I have watched the X-Men from their inception to their present day, always from the shadows, always with patience. And soon that patience will pay off, for Al Kennedy of House to Astonish and Jess and Andy Bellamer have finally come of age. The potential in their genetic code shall allow the creation of the perfect assassin for Lord Apocalypse. Now to prepare further. Was that Patreon supporter slash fiction? Uh, if so, Patreon supporters, you know, you don't have to, like, have sex and make cable or anything if you don't want to. Yeah, Sinister will clone you no matter what anyway. With that, I believe we are out of time for this episode. So Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Bobby Roberts, who is also the producer of the Geek Remixed trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast, Full of Sith. Special thanks to Rob Pawson for providing us with all of those what's. New episodes of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at our website, rachelandmiles.com. You can also check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more. Our podcast is completely ad-free and listener-supported, and it's made possible by our generous Patreon supporters, including the ones that Mr. Sinister is planning on, you know, messing with the DNA of. Guys, thank you so much. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, check out the link at the top of our website. We'll be back next week and diving back into the 616 as we get back to business as usual. Mm-hmm.